we're in a series in the book of Acts called First Followers, and we're learning from the first followers of Jesus. The title of the message this morning is simply Boldness. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would guide us by your spirit as we explore your word this morning. Open our, our eyes to see beautiful things in your word. Help us to engage with everything in us. Lord, help us, Lord, to, to hear from you. And Lord, to be shaped by what we find in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' first followers responded to persecution and to threats with prayer. But they didn't ask for personal safety or even for the threats to stop. They asked for something better. But what could be better than safety? What could be better than personal comfort? The day before this little prayer meeting that we're going to explore in Acts chapter 4, the day before this prayer meeting, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray, and a man who was crippled from birth, if you remember last Sunday we talked about this, a man who was crippled from birth asked for money. And Peter and John, they look at this man, they tell him, look look at us. We don't have any cash. They say, but what we have, we're going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And that word walk, it it marched out of Peter's mouth with all the power of heaven and earth behind it. The healing provided a platform to proclaim Jesus as the risen Savior. And then the temple authorities were all bent out of shape. They were extremely threatened by the message of Jesus raised to life because it threatened their power and their authority. And so they arrest Peter and John. And the next day, they surround them with all the authority that they could assemble, and they tell them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they breathe out all kinds of threats, and then they end up releasing them. And that's where we find them. Now Peter and John report back to their friends what happened. Let's read about it. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We'll look at three things this morning. First, this is bigger than us and ultimately about Jesus. Second, 
God knows what happened and we can leave it with him. And third, ask God to enable us to speak with boldness and to back it up with signs and wonders. So first, this is bigger than us and it's ultimately about Jesus. What did the early church do? Upon hearing the report of Peter and John, they raised their voices together in prayer. And I love that. I just, I love that. It was their first response to opposition. It was their first response to persecution and to threats coming their way. They together lifted their voice. What would your first response be to opposition? What is your first response to opposition? to persecution, to threats. You know, first responders, EMTs, firefighters, they face all kinds of brokenness every day. They arrive on a scene and they have to decide immediately what the most important thing to do is right then and there in order to save a life. They're the first responders. They've got to make a decision. What is priority? Right now, in this moment, and the same is true for us. When the opposition comes our way, it's not when, it's, it's, it's not if, it's when, right? When opposition, when persecution comes our way, when circumstances are, are heavy, how do we respond? What's our first response? The early church, they take this to the one with all authority. They take it to the one who knows and sees and cares and loves and is present with them. They take it to the one who can actually do something about the opposition. So imagine a room just filled with people who really care about Peter and John. And they're concerned not only about Peter and John's future and their safety and their thoughts of what's going to happen. But about anyone who, who really has allegiance to Jesus. And what does this mean for all of us? They raise their voices. Was this one at a time type prayer meeting? Was this everyone together? Like some beehive activity, just all these voices lifted up? I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know they raised their voices, it says, together. They were in unity. They were in agreement. They spoke out loud to the Lord, these prayers, and they were together. And we prayed this way this, this last Tuesday night at my house. We have every second Tuesday night of the month, we gather at a different house and, and we pray. And we were together in unity. We spoke out loud. We were in agreement. We were calling on the one who could do something about our circumstances. We were looking to the God who loves and cares and is active and is involved. We did it this morning at our pre-gathering time of prayer. Every Sunday at 9.15. Prayer is one of those things we often feel guilty about. When I sit with, with uh, believers, there, there are usually two things that people feel guilty about that they need to do more of, and that's evangelism and prayer. Those are two things I think we all struggle with. Maybe you want to pray, but you don't know how. Maybe you want to pray, but you don't even know where to start. You'd admit, I, I get really distracted. I get really tired. Listen, when we pray together, we listen. We listen to, we learn from, we stand with each other. There's something special that happens. We're in agreement. We're giving our amen. What does amen mean? Yes, I agree with that prayer. So much so, it's, it's my prayer. Amen. Amen to that. The opposition that the early church faced, it pushed them to pray. When we pray, we're expressing our dependency on God. 
but also were expressing expectation. And the opposition that they faced, the early church faced, it pushed them to pray. Opposition, persecution, threats, times of distress, it has a way of pushing us to pray and to get desperate before the Lord. We cry out for help. You know, when we really need help, I'm talking when we really need someone's help, we don't sit around thinking, well, how's this going to come out? You know? I mean, if we were in a place where of desperation, if, if we were drowning in a pool, we wouldn't just wonder to ourselves, I wonder how this is going to come out, how they're going to receive this, what it's going to sound like to others. No, we say, help me, help me. I need your help. I can't, I can't do this on my own. That's what we're doing when we come to the Lord in prayer. Help me. What if we actually live as desperately needy people? Like the man at the temple gate. Remember he was crippled from birth? Oh, he had no other option. No other option but to beg for money. He was looking to others to meet his daily need. We look to God. But see, when we look at our situation, when we look at our circumstances, oftentimes we see other options. Other options than prayer. Because prayer can feel so weak. Instead, we want to do something about our circumstance, something substantial, something that feels more powerful. And much like Jesus himself, who came in weakness, who was despised and dismissed, we push against prayer looking for another way. Well, here's Peter and John. They're standing before their friends. The church is gathered. They want to hear what happened to them. And they report the decision of the Sanhedrin, the high court of the temple. And they say, here are their judgments. Here are their threats that they've laid on us. And they're saying, yeah, this is bigger than us. It's bigger than us. And here's how they respond. Sovereign Lord. This is how they start. Sovereign Lord. In other words, they're saying, you're the one who holds absolute power. Yeah, the ones who say they have authority and power over us and who tried to uh, exercise that authority and power over us and to stop what we were doing in your name, they're telling us to stop. But we're looking to the one with all power and all authority. And they say, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You made it. Why did they start here? Why did they start their prayer there? Well, they're starting with what is true about God. It's a good place to begin. He is creator. God already knows he's creator. He already knows he made the heavens and the earth. And they know that he made the heavens and the earth. But they're saying it. They're recognizing the reality that God is over all. And this is the foundation for what comes next. God, your creator. I mean, nothing says that he's got authority and power more than he's creator. Author A.W. Tozer, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I just love that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Because what we believe about God shapes who we are, how we live, everything about us. Do we recognize God as holy, perfect in every way, 
as eternal? He's always been. As all-knowing? As all-powerful? As fair and just? As loving? As sovereign? The one who's got all control and power. And, and what do these truths of God do for us in times of prayer? How do they inform our prayer times? The early church wasn't talking to a generic God up in the clouds somewhere. The word God in our society, in our culture, is a generic term. We have the opportunity to come alongside others and help, help define and describe the, the God that we're talking about. He's not just the God we've made up. This is the God of the Bible, the one who is holy, the one who created all things. The one who is good and just and present. He's not indifferent. He's not some far off deity stroking his beard, sitting on a cloud somewhere. That's not the God of the Bible. We're defining God. We've come to see who God is through Holy Scripture. And we're engaging this God of Holy Scripture. We're reminding ourselves in prayer when we speak what is true of God. This is our starting point. They're speaking to the one who created all things and who holds all things together. And the truth is, the early church learned this way of prayer from those who went before them. You can find this type of prayer throughout Scripture. There's one in particular I want to point out. It's King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah was a king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. You had the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel, and then you had the two southern tribes of Judah. Because the nation had divided. So in around 701 BC, Assyria had already come in and, and destroyed and led the ten northern tribes of Israel into exile. And now they were standing right there around Jerusalem, surrounding the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah was king. He had nowhere to go. Hundreds of thousands of Assyrian troops right in his front yard. They were just, just throwing their threats. They were saying, we've We've conquered all the other kingdoms around you. There is no God who can stand against us. Yours won't either. What did he do with their threats? He laid it out before the Lord. Let's look at it. In Isaiah chapter 37, it says in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter. He had received a letter from messengers from the enemy. He had received the letter from the messengers and he read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. That's where he starts. He starts with who God is. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib, the, the, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God. It's true. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all the peoples in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God... Deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. You'll have to read the rest to find out what happens. 
He received the threats from Assyria. He recognized that it was not his battle to fight. And he brought these threats to the Lord in prayer. He laid them out before God. That's exactly what the early church is about to do. They said, you made God, you made the heavens and the earth. And then they said, you spoke. Verse 25, you spoke. What did he speak? You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David, your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. What's, what are they doing? They're quoting Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. They didn't just pull this psalm out at random. I mean, it's full of meaning and relevance for the situation at hand. And the psalm speaks about the rebellion of the nations against the anointed one, God's anointed one, the Messiah who would come, the Son of God, who will rule the nations and who will receive the nations eventually as his inheritance. That's what the psalm goes on to talk about. And so they're, they're taking this psalm and, and they're, they're understanding that this ultimately is speaking of Jesus. They recognize that the church is connecting the dots from Psalm 2 to Jesus. They recognize what happened to Jesus as the very fulfillment of Psalm 2. The rage, the opposition that was directed at Jesus. And it still is. The rage and opposition is ultimately against Jesus. We can't forget that. So when you decide to speak about Jesus, when you decide to speak about the cross or about the resurrection or about the call to follow him and what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, when you face rejection and opposition or persecution for that, it isn't about you. Ultimately, it's about Jesus. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Oh, in other words, God, this, this didn't catch you by surprise. Yeah, Herod and Pontius Pilate and Israel and the Jews, uh, the Gentiles, everyone was against your anointed one. Oh, we're connecting the dots here. Your word spoke that it would happen. You knew this would happen. It didn't catch you by surprise. The prayer expresses a deep trust in God's wisdom and attention to, de- to detail. Nothing Jesus went through was outside of God's notice and plan. What does that mean? The evil, the rejection of Jesus, the false accusation, the injustice, the wrongful actions, the mockery, the crucifixion itself, all done by the willful decision of those opposing Jesus, and yet none of it was outside of God's control. All of it was part of God's plan. To redeem. We have human responsibility and God's sovereignty. This is the groundwork for their prayer. It's the groundwork. It's the foundation for their request and what comes next. Number two. God knows what happened and we can leave it with him. They finally come to a place where they make some requests. And they don't ask for the persecution to stop. They don't ask for God to strike down their enemies. They don't ask for protection. They don't ask for safety. What do they ask? What do they ask? They say, consider their threats, enable your servants, and stretch out your hand. God, do these things for us, for your namesake and glory. That's what they're asking for. So let's look at that first request. Consider their threats. What are they saying here? They're saying, look at these threats. Take note and act accordingly. Here they are, God. It's just like what Hezekiah did. 
I mean, he had no other option. He'd received the threats in writing and he goes to the temple and he, he lays it before the Lord and he says, look at what they're saying. And that's what they're doing. Here they are, God. You see them. You know all about them. They didn't surprise you one bit. Knowing God knows, it makes all the difference. It does for me. D- does it for you? Knowing that God knows makes all the difference. You know how good it feels when you know someone has your back, right? And, and you know how good it feels when you're facing tremendous difficulty and you just call someone up to share that burden with you and that they're there for you. You just want them to know about the burden. They might not be able to do anything about it. They might not be able to change the circumstance, but they know. They know about it, and that does something for you. I remember as a a middle schooler, uh, my mom gave me the permission to share what was going on in my home with my youth pastor at the time. I had no one to talk to. I mean, there was a lot of drama going on in my home. I grew up around a lot of alcoholism, a lot of just stuff. And I could share with this, this guy what I was going through. She gave me the thumbs up and it just felt so good. So he took me to the beach and we were just hanging out and we were just, I was able just to just let him, let him know what's going on. Felt like a weight was lifted, but now consider how good it feels to know that God knows and to know that he knows. What difference does it make in your life to know that he knows? Listen, he cares and he can do something about it. He's active. First Peter chapter five, verse seven, it says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Well, we forget that. They're, they're essentially saying, we trust you, God, to make the right judgment about this opposition. Here it is. We give it to you. So this kind of request, it grew out of their theolo- theological understanding of God. They understood his character. They knew his word. They had this clear conviction and understanding that Jesus is the anointed one of God. He's the resurrected king. He's the one who defeated death itself. And so we're called to surrender to him. And yet, I'm sure that there were some that day thinking, well, wait a minute. What, what was done was unjust. It just isn't right for them to tell us to stop this way or for them to have locked you up. Well, what they're saying, maybe, you might, you might think, oh, what they're saying isn't true. Or you might think to yourself, well, what they did to me, it hurt. Or they're attacking what I hold dear. This is all true. This is all true. What do you do? You do what Jesus did. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're reminded that Jesus himself entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What does that mean? There isn't a passage in the New Testament I direct people to when I'm counseling them more than this one. Because we try to take the threats or the opposition or the hurt and the pain and we try to, we try to just figure out how to work through it instead of bringing it to, to the one who cares and who is active, to the one who knows, to the one who isn't going to dismiss the fact that injustice was done to us to the one who judges justly, which means he, he's going to right every wrong, whether it's in Christ, through repentance and looking to the cross, or at the final judgment. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 22. 
He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, speaking of Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, here's what he did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Do you entrust yourself? Do you entrust all the the thoughts and the fears and the circumstances of your life to the one who judges justly? Do you bring them like uh, King Hezekiah did or like the early church is doing? We entrust these to you, God. You're the righteous judge of all. You're going to judge justly. You know what to do. You see it all. So I don't need to retaliate. I don't need to try to to make right what's wrong. He's the one who's going to do it. He really is a refuge. He really is a present help in time of trouble. The alternative to surrendering this to him is to fight back or even try to outsmart those persecuting us. Oftentimes, this is driven by fear, the desire for safety, the desire for comfort, the desire for reputation to be upheld. But when God's reputation is our passion, when his honor is our goal, when we see him for who he is, the righteous judge, we're going to say with the early church, God, you know what happened. You're anything but indifferent. And we can leave it. We can leave it to you to do what's right. We entrust it to you. It's not my job. You see it. Finally, we're going to ask God to enable us to speak with boldness, to back it up with signs and wonders. That's what they did. They're essentially saying those who oppose us might might carry on with their opposition. But God, would you enable us to carry on with our witness? Would you give us the strength to do so in the midst of their opposition? Would you give us that kind of boldness? Would you enable us to bear up under that suffering under that opposition, for your namesake? What's their desire? To speak the word of God with boldness, with courage and conviction. They were consumed with God's missionary heart. Does this request surprise you? It it did me. It surprises me. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, he ends this letter. He's writing from jail. And he says, would you pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. A man who was in prison for the gospel, who had stood his ground and proclaimed Jesus in the face of opposition and was locked up for it, is now asking the Ephesians to pray for him that he would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. What does that tell you? That tells you that we all move in and out of places of fear and faith and trust. We all need to be filled with faith and and the boldness that comes by the Spirit, that no one has arrived. Are you kidding? No one here has arrived and will always walk with great boldness in everything that they do. We need God to work in us. Is this on your prayer list? Is this something you long for? Can you leave the opposition? Can you leave it to God? Can you leave what others have done to you to God and focus on faithfulness to your call to tell others about the the truth of Jesus? They also ask God to continue to work in a way that authenticates the message of Jesus. What does that mean? 
authenticate this message we're proclaiming. How? Through signs and wonders. God was working miracles through the apostles, through the early church, just like crazy. And we're going to learn more. We're going to see that unfold in the book of Acts. How expectant should you and I be for this kind of Holy Spirit activity? I want to be more expectant for God to work wonders, for God to work miracles. I want to believe God to heal and deliver and save and transform and reconcile. What do you think salvation is? It's a miracle of God's grace. What do you think forgiveness, true reconciliation is? A miracle of God's grace. Can we, can we pray for this? Can we expect this? It's, these are things only he can really do. The place after they prayed was shaken. So through this apparent earthquake, God is saying, I am present and I will answer. And how did he answer? He filled them with his spirit yet again. And they were given the boldness that they asked for. They were given the enablement that they needed to proclaim the word of God. That was their longing. Oh, God, would you enable me to proclaim your word with boldness? That's what I want most, more than anything, is what they were saying. Again, because they were consumed with this missionary heart, this desire To get the word out that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one in whom all hope and joy and life and salvation is found. It was all consuming. And it should be. It should be. God uses opposition. He uses persecution. Oh, it's not too big for him. Imprisonment? No. It's nothing. Easy for me to say, I'm not imprisoned. Could I trust him in the midst of that? There are people all around the world doing it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, enduring opposition. But the church, what God is doing through it can't be stopped. One of the most common prayers that I pray is this, fill me, Lord. What am I asking? I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to enable me to do what he's called me to do. Now, Here they're filled with the Holy Spirit, thought that they already had the Spirit of God. What's going on? This is about an ongoing dependency on God the Holy Spirit to do what he's called us to do. In Ephesians 5, it says, it's essentially, he's saying, be being filled. It's it's, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't be under the influence of alcohol. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is the illustration he gives. You're just drinking in the alcohol and then you're influenced, right? You're 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 saying... Holy Spirit, just influence me in every way. Fill me and empower me every day. God's presence in power is readily available for you and I. He's near. What do you ask for in times of prayer? What have you learned from the early church in times of opposition? They were enabled to speak the word of God boldly, with great courage in the face of opposition, with those threats still hanging over their heads. We're going to see what happens. The threats don't let up, guys. The church, the church has to endure here in the next few chapters some, some real serious opposition. And some who are near and dear to their, their hearts actually are killed because of the stand, the, uh, the stand that they take, and that they make for the gospel's sake. But the gospel can't be stopped. Not by opposition, not by persecution, not by death. What do you do? What are you doing 
with the threats that come your way? What are you doing with the opposition and the persecution right now? Will you entrust it to the Lord? Will you bring it to the one who judges justly? We're invited to do so. And will you ask him to enable you to speak his word boldly in the face of opposition? Empower us, Lord. Let's pray that now. Father, thank you so much for this witness and example of the early church. It's our turn now. The baton has been passed. Here we are in in St. Pete, called to live out this beautiful story of redemption. Here we are, Lord, some of us experiencing opposition, some of us experiencing persecution for what we believe, some of us having been rejected by family or friends or misunderstood, misrepresented. Maybe we've experienced all of the above. And if we haven't, we know that we will one day. But in the midst of that, would you enable us as a church to entrust it all to you? To believe that you see and know. And let that be enough for us. And in addition, would you enable us to speak your word boldly? Oh, not arrogantly, but humbly and boldly with conviction and courage. To point to the beauty and the reality of who you are in the face of your son, Jesus. Would you enable us to do that by your spirit? And to believe that you'll back that up with whatever signs and wonders you want to back it up with. We trust you, God. We're asking you to do this for your namesake and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.